In our final episode of Shut Up, She's Talking for 2020, we'll be exploring violence, exploitation and consent. When it comes to non-consensual sexual activity, who are the people that are often left behind? Who in these conversations are never invited to the table to talk? And who should be in these conversations? Who should be leading them and at the forefront when we discuss consent? In my opinion, these women are sex workers and their stories of consent are unique for anybody who is unfamiliar with the sex industry. Today, we're speaking about how financial services discriminate against sex workers and the non-consensual repercussions that this may have on consensual sex. And then we're going to be looking at how some local councils in Australia are funding some pretty dodgy investigative practices to try and prosecute unlicensed businesses in the sex industry. And by doing so, they're putting sex workers in dangerous situations. So let's do it. Our final episode of the year. My name's Alice. You're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking. And today we're going to be speaking with Cheryl and Quinn. Despite sex workers negotiating sex every day, they're rarely the people we turn to in conversations of consent. In this post-Me Too world, how often are sex workers being asked to share their expertise and experience? Sex workers operating consensually negotiate their terms, what they offer as a service, what they categorically do and do not do with every client they have. Sex workers are experts here. Why don't we ask them or at least invite them to join us when we debate and when we have these conversations and when we educate people about what consent actually is. But sex workers face their own unique challenges when it comes to consent. As any person may face sexual harassment and abuse in any workplace, sex workers are expected to take this as part of their job. And sexual assault on sex workers is usually just met with some victim blaming. It shouldn't be. So violence prevention is a top priority for sex workers. But today we're going to speak about economic exclusion. Being economically and financially independent is a huge priority for sex workers' safety, happiness and well-being. So they can be self-supporting and not work for some boss when they'd rather be working for themselves. It's so important for women to be financially independent no matter what your occupation. This gives us choices. And cash like notes and coins are soon becoming non-existent. And that's not a scary thing for many people. A cashless world and electronic banking to the rest of us doesn't sound like a big deal. If anything, it's easier. No need to carry money around. Great. And it's not a big deal for us because we're considered economically valuable. Financial laws are written for us. 
If we've got some money, we can use a bank, and it's no problem whatsoever. And if somebody tries to take that money and commit fraud against us, the bank or financial service will usually investigate that. So we're pretty safe. That's not. So we're pretty safe. But that isn't the case for sex workers. Financial services like PayPal have incredibly damaging anti-sex work policies. So if a sex worker has a client that wants to pay electronically, the client can just cancel payment whenever they want, and they do, and it's like nothing ever happened. If a sex worker were to then take this to PayPal or their bank and financial service, in some cases, they would have no way of redeeming that payment because the financial law that these services are built from is anti-sex work. More often than not. When it's a sex worker's word against a man's word or their client, the guy wins every time. And if a sex worker is not paid for their service, this sex is non-consensual. The sex was only consensual with payment. If that payment never arrives, or if it's denied or cancelled, the client has committed a crime against this worker. It's non-consensual and it's fraud. And we should be prosecuting every single individual who tries to exploit a sex worker like this. But the conversation we're going to have today is more about the policies. The economic exclusion sex workers face is linked to financial laws and human trafficking. So, what do these laws have to do with the wider conversation around consent with sex workers? Well, let's talk about that. My first guest today is a woman who is known in the community as the Madonna. She's a legend. Her name is Cheryl Overs. She's the founder and former first director of the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria. She founded the Scarlet Alliance in Australia in the 80s. Cheryl has worked with men, women, and trans communities in HIV prevention and care on a global level, and is a senior research fellow at the Michael Kirby Centre at Monash University in Australia. And she's worked in universities across the UK. So yeah, she's busy and she knows her shit. Hello there. Oh, hello. <laughs> there you are. Me and Cheryl were chatting away, and it didn't take her very long to um, catch on to my accent. You and how have you been? I'm English, yeah. Where from? Yeah, I'm from Essex. Oh, right. I lived in England for 33 years. I was back here visiting when COVID came. I'm stranded. Oh. I live in oh England, not here. Oh my Cheryl God. told me how she's been living in the UK for 33 years. And so after we had a good catch-up and spoke about the place we both call home, I asked Cheryl... What does it mean for sex workers if electronic financial services are not supporting sex workers and refuse to investigate claims of fraud? It's absolutely the case that if you have electronic payments go wrong, if they're cancelled, if they if they're if they are challenged in any way, sex workers will, will, will not have this sort of comeback that other businesses have got. That's one problem. Another problem is that it gives clients bargaining power. Another problem is that it um, can amount to 
privacy violations, which of course in the case of sex workers is extremely dangerous. So that if you can't register in a, have a registered business name and get a card in that name, if you've got to do it in your own name, that immediately means your, 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 your correct legal name that's on other documents will become um, visible to the client on his credit card statement or whatever. So there's all sorts of small problems like that that um, may increase uh, danger for sex workers. What sex workers who can't or don't want to negotiate the difficult world of being an independent sex worker without access to uh, banking facilities in the new cashless world, the solution is you go and work for somebody. Financial discrimination is so much driven by the concept of stopping human trafficking. And yet, when we look at, we, we, we look at how it actually pans out, it incentivizes people to go and work for bosses who are known when it comes to sex work as pimps. So in fact, the law and the policy um, and the whole phenomenon of economic exclusion and marginalization creates and reproduces the very problem that it is meant to help redress. And there's also other issues too, such as child welfare, domestic violence, all of these, if every social problem that we might be concerned about is exacerbated by poverty, and by lack of citizenship and lack of uh, lack of redress in countries without the rule of law that's a really insurmountable problem in a country like australia with the rule of law it's unforgivable the tools are there to fix it and i'm really excited in victoria that it will be fixed um, after decriminalization and i really am so impressed with the sex workers activists who are not thinking about only about decriminalization because people need to understand that criminal law, getting arrested, getting charged, being taken in front of a magistrate's court and paying a fine, that's not it, that's not the sharp end. The sharp end of, of criminal law is systematic discrimination. And by sharp end, I mean the bit that's driving true human misery, whether that's violence, whether it's having to go and work in a horrible brothel for some awful boss when you'd much rather be independent, whether it means renting rather than ever getting the opportunity to buy a house. There's all kinds of, of, of because sex work and sex workers are are diverse. There's all kinds of diverse manifestations of that, but nothing good comes out of it. And that's one of the one of the reasons that decriminalisation is so crucial, and and so inexcusably absent in a country like Australia. So electronic payments are not just potentially putting sex workers' consent on trial here, but also their privacy. With electronic banking, sex workers find it much harder to work incognito, and they often work under different names for their own safety. Stalking is rife in sex work, and stigma attached to being a sex worker is quite harmful. So many choose 
anonymity to protect themselves. And all these issues with banking could incentivize them to work for bosses or pimps. So economic exclusion drives the exact problems these financial laws and human trafficking laws were supposed to redress. Which is why decriminalisation is so crucial for the safety of sex workers. Cheryl went on to tell me about the policies she believes relate directly to consent. There's a policy issue in here that I see as being quite important linked to consent. And that is that financial discrimination is very much driven now by the Foster and Sester laws in the United States. And it's the law that stops people profiting from trafficking of, 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 of sex trafficking. It's the anti-trafficking law. And the philosophy behind Foster-Sester is that if you supply a sex worker with a financial service, you are aiding and abetting trafficking because sex work is trafficking. So the conflation of consensual sex work with non-consensual trafficking is at the very centre of the driver of discrimination. It makes it illegal not to discriminate against sex workers. Because if you don't discriminate against sex workers, you are aiding and abetting human trafficking. So this comes down to a very important point about consent. And that is that according to the US law, an adult female, possibly an adult person, but the extent to which this applies to men is, is, is debatable, but an adult female cannot consent to sell sex. She can consent to give it away. She consent, can consent to trade it for a lifetime of marital support, but she cannot consent to sell it. As soon as she says she's selling it, her consent is nullified. She is a victim of human trafficking. Even if she thinks she's consented, it is not possible. She's been duped. Her consent is not valid. And therefore, this refusal of the United States government to recognise sex work as work, or even as consenting sex, is at the very heart of economic discrimination against sex workers. And then the impact is that sex workers are put into conditions where they're less able to work with the full um, complement of consensual checks and balances that you would normally have within a, in a commercial sexual setting. So it's a different kind of angle on it. It's not, these banks are not, some of it is prejudice, but there are not necessarily people sitting behind desks going, ooh, sex workers don't like them. It's much more insidious than that. It's a law. It's the Foster-Sester law. It's the conflation of human trafficking and sex work that is at the centre of the problem. But I think it's very important to recognise that it's a, the, refusal to recognise consent in commercial sex is at the centre of this issue. Does that law affect Australian policy and UK policy? It most certainly does. 
And it does that because MasterCard and Visa and PayPal um, are all international organisations. They all will go along with Foster and Sesta, um, whether or not it's their American entity, but it certainly does all over the world. And as US, as US policy does through in developing countries through its aid programs and so on. US policy is global policy. Sex workers around the world and many of us using banks and financial services are affected by US financial law. PayPal discriminates against sex workers and as Cheryl said, they'd be breaking US law if they weren't anti-sex work because they'd be seen to be supporting human trafficking. The Foster-Sester laws in the US were brought in by the Trump administration in 2018 with an attempt to abolish sex trafficking. But it's actually an anti-sex work bill masked as a sex trafficking bill. Two very different things. It has done an excellent job at shutting down safeguards for sex workers looking to go about their work safely. And as we now know it has a significant effect on other industries and the prejudice against sex workers. US law continues to become more conservative. Trump has left behind a legacy of conservative laws and they must be untangled. But both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris don't have a great track record when it comes to voting and acting in the interest of sex workers. So... Will things change post-Trump? We shall see. Change in the White House or not, the reality remains. Sex workers will have to move to this cashless world like we all will, but if they're not seen as economically equal and do not have the tools to be financially independent, they could become or remain vulnerable. And if clients use this to their own advantage, Sex workers could be victims of non-consensual sex and fraud. If we expect change for sex workers in Australia and the UK, we will have to look at the US for law changes in their financial policies. But does working within the law mean no more discrimination for sex workers? Making an activity legal doesn't remove people's ability to, to discriminate against you, of course. Um, another in, in important form of economic discrimination is insurance. Um, I took a case to court a couple of years ago here in Melbourne of a sex worker who couldn't, who couldn't get life insurance, which was required for her mortgage because she was a sex worker and the insurance comp, the view of the insurance company based incidentally on international guidelines was that a sex worker is a high risk person who shouldn't get life insurance. Uh, being a sex worker was equated, was seen as being worse than a smoker. And even though we, we, and we actually kind of won by introducing, they wanted to talk about HIV. I was hoping they would talk about violence and actually be explicit in their refusal to provide life insurance to a sex worker on the basis that she was more likely to be murdered than anyone else and just how disgraceful that is. But in fact, they went with HIV, which was clearly absurd because there's hardly any sex, I mean, there's no 
um, cis female sex workers with HIV effectively in Australia. So that was absurd and they settled out of court. But certainly being legal doesn't mean you can't be discriminated against. What needs to change? What 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 are the steps? Ah, well, there's a lot of steps. A lot of things need to be done to reduce um, all forms of discrimination. I think what's interesting, and I'd really take my hat off to um, to sex work law reform Victoria, because they've rightly identified that that economic exclusion is really very much at the top of sex workers' priorities. If you read about what everyone else says, it's HIV and sexual health. That's not what sex workers are thinking about. Sex workers are thinking about economic exclusion. Exclusion, um, and I think in Australia, the the what needs to happen is not just the removing the criminal laws against sex work, but ensuring that the anti-discrimination laws work well. And you know, we're very well placed here. We have a strong rule of law. We have really strong institutions. There is no reason why equal opportunities commissions in each state can't be held to account for to take up cases on behalf of um, of sex workers. And of course, that takes a lot of work to link to the sex workers for sex workers to want to use that that um, that route. And so on a on just a day to day level, if a sex worker can't get life insurance, they also won't be accepted as a customer at a bank um, or a financial service like PayPal. What happens to to sex workers if they're put in this situation? Well, it won't surprise anybody to know that that banks and so on often will take your money. They're just not so good when it comes to helping you. One of the scandals is that they open bank accounts, but then when you want, um, when you do all the things that other people have to do in order to get a mortgage, that's the point at which the discrimination begins. Um, and well, there's a range of impacts. I imagine I, I don't know them all, and they've not been studied. Um, here in Australia, they certainly should be. Um, and again, Sex Work Law Reform Victoria does a brilliant job of gathering information about this, but at this stage it's pretty much anecdotal. So that they have to go to alternative forms of media, they have to use, they will use alternative forms of um, of saving. And in fact, it just sets up a, 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 a culture in which sex workers can be exploited because you have to buy. It's, it's a standard thing that doesn't just apply to sex workers. If you're locked out of something legitimately, you have to go and get it illegitimately. And in that case, it always costs more. It's always less reliable and so on. So sex workers are very vulnerable to loan sharks and vulnerable to all kinds of other things that you might do uh, in order to, to try and advance yourself. And also things like people can find out you're a sex worker and suddenly the bond on the, an apartment doesn't, is, is not coming back to you. So you can get ripped off because people rip off people where they can get away with it. People in Australia seem to say, what's the, what's the US election got to do with us? And I'm like, are you kidding me? 
um, you know, it's got everything to do with us and change of policy and law in the US is absolutely crucial in any respect, whether it's climate change, gender-based violence, any issue you want to want to pick, change in the US is, is, is crucial. But the other thing that's important is decolonization, which I notice New Zealand's doing a decent job of. So we don't necessarily have to follow the, the US in these kinds of social policies, that's for sure. Um, I, I, but I think there's some other important things going on there as well. The academic and philosophical push that conflates sex work or redefines consensual adult sex work as human trafficking and exploitation, that philosophy is coming from deeper places across the women's movement, across um, some other social thinking at the moment. So what I will say about the United States is actually very optimistic. I think that the Black Lives Matter is the most important thing that's happened in the sex workers' rights movement globally. And while that may not seem obvious at first, that's because sex workers' rights thinking has been very driven by the concept of harm minimisation, public health, controlling disease, saving people from violence. It's a very social worker-driven approach. Black Lives Matter and the things that particularly black trans sex workers were saying in the United States, I think has given, us, has given us a really important vision of where sex workers' rights fits into the decolonization and the intersectionality agenda. And for me, that's the way forward. And I think that's what's, that it's one of those amazing paradoxes in political life with the United States. It gives us the worst and it gives us the best. Financial law and economic exclusion impacting consent is a challenge that applies to many women around the world. And sex workers are some of them. But there are more unique challenges facing sex workers that negate their consent. We're only looking at two ways in which sex workers face exploitation and their consent comes into question today. And so our second conversation is about evidence gathering. Evidence gathering is a practice carried out by authorities to discover if a brothel, sex worker or establishment is operating within the law and within their licences. In a country like Australia where some sex work is legal, local councils, liquor authorities and police still look to crack down on unlicensed or illegal sex work. To do this, they pay investigators to enter brothels who they suspect are running without a license or breaching their license and the investigators are expected to have sex with women. Yeah, it's disgusting. Councils are funding this, so thereby taxpayers are funding this. 
So private investigators and other people in authority are being paid by councils across Australia to enter these places and have sex for evidence. When I first heard this, my jaw dropped. What on earth is going on? To learn more about evidence gathering, I needed to speak with a sex worker who had their own experience with this type of activity. And so the second guest on today's show is Quinn. When I first met Quinn, we chatted over video call, as we're all too familiar with now. She's got this beautiful voice that can immediately just put you at ease. And she totally did with me. And we got chatting And so Quinn has worked in and out of the sex industry for the last 20 years. And so before we spoke about consent and evidence gathering, I wanted to know a little more about Quinn's work. Over the last 20 years, I have weaved in and out of the sex industry. So I have worked as a sex worker, uh, also as a dancer, and as a happy ending masseuse, and just depending on where I needed a change or a break, whether or not I was studying at the time, um, casual jobs couldn't really support me studying and living alone, whereas the adult industry was able to do that for me. I asked Quinn if she can remember any of the good experiences that she's had, which convinced her that sex work was the job she really wanted to pursue? I would say they came more in the form of the clients themselves. Meeting such beautiful people, they would share their life stories and experiences with me and I'd just soak it up like a sponge and want to hear more. (laughs) I would say sex accounted for probably 5% of the time together. Wow. The rest of it was just connection. Mm. meeting amazing people also within the the stripping industry. The most wonderful place I ever worked at was a peep show venue and originally I was dead scared to go in there. I was like, no, it's just got to be awful seedy. The women, they're going to trample all over me because they must have balls to do peep shows, Mm. so I'm going to be like a scared kitten in the corner. Although Quinn may have been nervous about the peep show venue at first, she assured me it actually turned out to be one of her favourite places to work. And after we chatted a bit more about Quinn's job, we inevitably ended up talking about COVID. As everyone does. All conversations come back to COVID now, right? But we spoke about the impacts that those restrictions and lockdowns have had on Quinn's business. There's obviously the financial impact. You go from having a steady income and a steady stream of regulars to absolutely zero overnight. But it is that connection that you have with clients. I I have called a couple of clients to check in on them to make sure they're okay. I've spoken to a few over the phone. I did attempt to do some virtual services. For me personally, they were awkward and clunky and because you're not face-to-face with your client, you don't get the the touch, the smell, that other, those bodily connections. And then there's also the fact that technology is not always reliable. 
so yeah missing like long nights with, with customers who would book overnight long nights of talking just sharing what's happened to each other throughout the week offloading um many clients you know they they want to share their problems we we're not just sex workers we are listeners we're listeners and we have such varied lived experiences that we can empathize most of the time with the client and i think they are so appreciative of that and having worked in other industries outside of the adult industry you do not get that connection with your colleagues obviously there's no depth to it there's no genuine warmth so absolutely you miss that it's actually very isolating for a sex worker to have those barriers between themselves and their clients and i know we're all just itching and waiting to see when we can finally embrace our clients again rather than exchange texts or phone calls well I, i do know i have had one client contact me recently just asking if we could exchange texts and phone calls every day while covid-19 restrictions are still in place because in his words he he was isolated and just needed a friend we spoke about covid-19 Quinn's career over the last 20 years and Quinn taught me some stripper talk too like what sunny side up means and for anybody wondering it's when you're dancing on stage right and you're you're in the middle of the performance and you're showing lots of pink so open leg work with full vulva labia and clitoris on display so just in case you're out there wondering sunny side up there you go extending the vocab with shut up she's talking um but yeah and um, after some stripper talk we spoke about evidence gathering this is the practice funded by councils or liquor licensing authorities where private investigators are paid to go into potentially illegal brothels and find evidence of them working outside their license one of the ways investigators can gather evidence is by actually receiving a sexual service and catching the establishment red-handed so to speak This is questionable on so many levels, but it's a seriously disturbing way to gather evidence and goes way beyond what an ethical investigation looks like. This leaves women who are on the other end of these evidence missions in vulnerable positions. And so we're going to explore that now in a bit more detail. Quinn talks to us about the experiences she's had with authorities demanding services from her and the way that they can manipulate and intimidate women to provide a service they may not have done otherwise. Quinn starts by telling us about her first experience with a man in blue. Well, my my first experience would have been over 15 years ago. I I thought, oh no, you know, I want a little break from full service. And I saw an advertisement, you know, from the Susus, and I thought, oh, okay, straight job for a little bit. <laughs> so I went went to the interview, gave the owner a massage, and and he assured me it wasn't a rub and tug. And I came first shift, found out it was a rub and tug, and the way I found out was because the client demanded the tug part. 
and said, oh, I, I always, always receive a hand job. When I book for the full hour, I always get a hand job. I remember running out and asking the receptionist, really, is this the case? Because the owner was off premises at the time. And she was like, yes, yes. Went back into the room. And now I'm in a room alone with a gentleman much, much, much larger than myself. And I'm very, very young, very, very nervous. I know it. I know that it's not a licensed premises. I suspect the gentleman's possibly a police officer just by his shoes and his haircut. And what crosses my mind is, well, if he's not and I don't provide the service, is he going to get angrier, irate, um, I'm in this room on my own? So if I don't provide the service, oh, I could be in trouble. I, I felt intimidated, completely trapped. And I was like, well, but then again, if I do provide the service, oh, shit, that could have even worse implications for me. And you're, you're on the spot. Um, so I felt I had absolutely no choice. It was a choice between two evils. Either way, I wasn't going to walk out feeling great. I provided the service and as he was leaving, he said to me, oh, you were right. I wear a lot of blue. I freaked out. This is, this is full panic attack mode, heart thumping, sweating, shaking. I didn't sleep well for months on end and I remember the incident so vividly. The whole time I was thinking, oh, oh, but, but yeah, sure, maybe, maybe he wears a lot of blue, but he could have just been a client, um, come in as a client or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe he went Maybe he says he wears a lot of blue because um, he's in the Navy or what. I certainly knew that wasn't true. I I suspected what he was just by shoes and haircut and demeanour. And he confirmed it as he exited. So he'd received the service. Um, the fear and the panic put in me. I've never experienced that stay awake all night worrying Quinn's first encounter shook her and left her restless and sleepless for a long time. She was concerned that she may end up with a criminal record or fired and just really scared in general. But this did make her hypervigilant and so she looked for red flags when she saw them again. Quinn continues. That experience put my hackles up so my sixth sense became even more refined after that. I remember taking a customer for a dance once and you, uh, again, this was a long time ago because I firmly believe uh, police practices have changed since then. And this gentleman and I, we got along really, really well, really well. I offered him the, the extras, those being things like uh, simulated toy shows rather than just a private strip show and up close and personal literal lap dance and he, he, he willingly paid for those extras and then informed me he was a police officer. Oh, that came up in the general cops of conversation. 
you know, you ask your client, oh, what do you do? What do you, how's your day been? Like, oh, yeah, I'm a police officer. And I said, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to have to refund you your money. Um, and he's like, why? I don't see why. I said, I, I can't in good faith provide those services knowing you're a police officer. I, I appreciated his honesty, his transparency. I really did. However, I could only conduct myself accordingly to what I felt comfortable with, and I did not feel comfortable doing it anymore. Anyway, that it didn't end so well because he, after the dance, he hung around the venue, and he was attempted to book another dance. I told the manager to refuse him, no, and um, he just sat around, and I again felt intimidated because he was puffing and puffing away where he was seated with his arms crossed, you know, he, he still, he still wanted those extras and I wasn't going to provide them. So every time I would walk past to go to the bathroom or take another customer for a dance, I would, yes, unfortunately feel his wrath come my way. It was nearly like I'm not leaving until I get what I want. Like, oh, oh, so yes. And I... I, to me, that I don't believe that was an evidence-gathering practice. But again, to to push a woman into a corner, regardless of your position and what you do, is to take away her her right, her freedom, to say no. If she feels she can't safely remove herself from the situation she might succumb to providing their services. That's not consensual. The last time it happened to me was at a strip club, a suburban strip club, where pretty much you knew all the gentlemen that came in, except one day a gentleman came in and I, I'd never seen him before, and, and that was unusual. Didn't have to hustle him or anything. That would, that's unusual for a stripper too. Oh, getting rid of the hustle. And I'd, just, I'd actually just come off stage after doing a stage show. Loved it. I'm, I'm that that exhilaration of being up there and inter, get, jumping off the stage and interacting with the customers. They could see I was having a great time. Therefore, they're having a great time. Vice versa. And then straight away when the show ended. That gentleman, this gentleman, he's like, I want to book a private dance. Okay, couldn't believe it. Didn't didn't have to introduce myself. Um, didn't have to ask him to buy me a drink. Rah rah rah. So off we go to the private room, and the entire it was a twenty minute dance. I recall vividly these things he do. He repeatedly asked me if he could masturbate himself. Repeatedly. I'm thinking in my head, okay, mm, I know what's going on. Uh, firstly, because I've never seen him before. Secondly, because he was so insistent. And thirdly, I also thought, he thought in his mind, oh, that girl on stage is willing to do anything. She'd make a good target. Because I am pretty open, sunny side up when I'm on stage. So... We're in the room, and it was just me the whole time saying, no, 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 no. And quite exasperated, 
finished the dance and as we were leaving he was like oh if I quickly ejaculate into the corner there now no one's going to know no one's going to know that which is absolute bullshit <laughs> it turns out I was probably oh, a couple of days later that uh, the owners thanked me because it, it turns out it was within this gentleman's purview to have the entire venue closed down had I turned around and said yeah now you will have dancers, sex workers, wherever they're working, whether it's a legal or illegal premise, if they're in that kind of scenario, there are many who will just give in to stop the harassment or give in, provide the service because they need the extra money. I was just fortunate, I think, in my situation that so many years beforehand I had encountered it and it shook me to the core to the point that I was always hypervigilant afterwards. But you shouldn't have to go to work being hypervigilant. that he's actually put on girls to partake in those things even though they're they're designed to be seen in those investigations are designed to see if something's on offer but in my experience it's been that the male whether he be undercover in blue or undercover with licensing authority my experience they're insistent they want it they want you to perform it they intimidate you and then for the rest of the night harass you. To me it's not consensual when a woman is pushed into it. There are examples of private investigators hired by some councils across Australia throughout the last 20 years which have used aggressive tactics to gather evidence. And so we know some private investigators have harassed and assaulted sex workers to get proof of sex on premises. It remains unclear how widespread such practices are, but some councils across Australia in recent years have voted to continue these investigations, with the taxpayer directly funding this activity. The real cost of these investigations is unclear, as some councils that are known to be gathering evidence across Australia refuse to release full disclosure of costings when it comes to this sort of investigation. Quinn has been open about her experiences with the authorities, but not everyone is. Councils are funding activities that could put women and sex workers in really alarming situations. But luckily, some fighters like Quinn and the activists around her are holding councils and authorities accountable. These legendary activists will not allow these disgusting investigations to be swept under the carpet. One particularly ferocious activist on the ground had a question for a council in Australia. She wrote into the council and she asked them directly what on earth they were spending their money on. This activist will remain anonymous, but they sent me the questions they asked and the written responses they received from the council. 
This is the exchange between counsel and activist. These are their words, but not their voices. On the 21st of May 2019, council resolved to engage independent investigators to allow council to actively investigate alleged illegal brothel establishments by managing the issue in-house. Since the 21st of May 2019, how much money has council spent paying independent investigators or the employers who hire such investigators to investigate suspected illegal brothels? We're independent investigators we use to investigate the seven illegal establishments prosecuted to date. Council has paid approximately $12,110 to the employers who hire these investigators. However, as Council has been successful in prosecuting these premises, the Magistrate has ordered the Council's cost be paid. This has resulted in the investigators' fees being recoverable. Can Council guarantee that since the 21st of May 2019, independent investigators paid for by Council to investigate suspected illegal brothels have not engaged in sexual activities with sex workers inside suspected illegal brothels. Where independent investigators were used to investigate the seven illegal establishments prosecuted to date, the independent investigators undertook activities necessary for the purpose of gathering evidence. This council and others across Australia have debated whether evidence gathering is too expensive, whether it's something taxpayers really want their money spent on, whether it makes them look bad, and even if it's legal. Yeah, the councils debated if this was legal, and still they continued. Councils also have debated whether evidence gathering places male council officers and investigators in dangerous and morally compromising positions. But not once has the welfare of the sex worker been debated. In all debates on whether this practice should continue, sex workers' well-being and safety have not been a priority. The council in question feels that it's a complete waste of money to pay a private investigator who does not find evidence of sexual services. And so, Investigators who come up empty-handed from these investigations are not looked at favourably. If this does not incentivise aggressive tactics and sexual exploitation in order to gather evidence against these said illegal brothels, then what will? This completely incentivises aggressive tactics and sexual exploitation to gather evidence. And this council confirmed to our activist that the investigators were to gather evidence at whatever means necessary. The sex workers I've spoken to and who are directly trying to change this practice have one question. Why do investigators need to actually have sex with the women? Why do they need to follow through on the sexual act to gather evidence? Why is the agreement not enough? To what extent does 
evidence need to be gathered to determine it is an illegal parlour? Surely it doesn't mean entrapment or leaving the worker feeling they have no option either way but to provide the service. Does that private investigator or whoever is conducting the evidence gathering really need to be on the receiving end of the sexual service and actually receive that sexual service? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Trapping a sex worker into providing a sexual service and then receiving that sexual service, again, to me, negates consent. The work that Quinn does is fundamental for her clients' health. We know that through COVID, she's been speaking to her clients daily, checking in on them, making sure they're not feeling entirely by themselves. In a world where we're getting further removed from each other, sex workers are doing a lot of emotional labour, building connections and giving people experiences that they're longing for. And just that bit of intimacy that maybe they don't have that in their life with anybody else. For that work, sex workers deserve far better than their financial services determining whether they're paid or not. And these services turning a blind eye to dodgy clients. They deserve more than councils, funding investigators or liquor license authorities to walk into establishments and aggressively try to gather evidence. Licensed or not, sex workers deserve more than that. And Quinn aims to do something about it. Quinn knows the law. She's built an interest of the law over the last 20 years. She knows what it looks like to be on the other side and she knows the stories of her fellow sex workers. And this motivated Quinn to go back to school. A couple of years back, I just went, wow, it, it's all, it all comes back to the same thing, the law changing the law. Naively, I didn't realise until probably five years ago that sex work wasn't fully legal, that it hadn't been decriminalised, that it was still so heavily regulated in the licensing system, the advertising laws and the rigmarole that's not imposed upon other industries. And the only way to change that is to change the law. What do you see happening in the next couple of years or the next 10 years with sex work communities if you have anything to do with that law change and that yeah. reform? Yes, being deregulated, decriminalised, all forms of consensual adult sex work legal, not a criminal offence, just because of where it takes place or how it takes place. Or, and uh, that for the, the sex worker community as a whole to be viewed as a community rather than pushed further and further and further to the fringes of society. December is a month of acknowledgement, activism and action for sex workers and for gender-based violence. The 17th of December marks the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. To decriminalise sex work would make sex workers closer to economic equality, financial independency and safety. 
So the next time you're in conversation about consent and sexual exploitation or anything else, maybe see what your local sex work activist groups are saying, what they're campaigning for and consider their experiences. Bring them into the conversations and invite somebody else to the table whose experience may be unfamiliar to your own. That was the last episode of Shut Up, She's Talking for 2020. I'm Alice and my wonderful guests today were Cheryl Overs and Quinn. Thanks for listening and see you in 2021.